Today's episode of Modern Bonsai is brought to you by www.bonsaimerch.com. Shop now for the latest and greatest bonsai merchandise and accessories. Australia-wide shipping and great prices. So shop now, www.bonsaimerch.com. Welcome back to another episode of Modern Bonsai. Today, we're doing another Japanese Apprentice episode, and this time, we have Adam Webster. Adam is currently in his fourth year apprenticeship in Japan, and he shares with us some of his greatest knowledge that he's learned since he's been there, and tells us some of his stories about how he became an apprentice in Japan and his path to that calling. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. kind of know a little bit about you already but why don't you fill me and the listeners in about you know who you are and you know um kind of how you got started into the journey of bonsai all right well uh gee when i was young when i was really young my parents had a bookshelf and um and on that bookshelf was the sunset the little thin sunset um bonsai book and so yep. from from that time um you know i must have been must have been seven years old or something i'd look at that book all the time and i was amazed at at what i what i was seeing on these pages and i was always taken by you know the 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 mystery of um of this art and uh and so i kind of that was my introduction to to what bonsai you know, was or is, and um, and I suppose yeah, I, w- I was interested in it, but I never did anything about it, um, you know, for for a long, long time. And then when I was uh, must have been twenty ish, um, it was my girlfriend's birthday, and I. I was looking around and I couldn't find anything for her and and I was just in a nursery for some reason and they had bonsai and I and I bought her a bonsai. It was a little um cryptomeria. Um and yeah, I bought it for her and she was like, Yeah, thanks. And um and we had that sitting in the backyard, but I started caring for it and started started watering watering it and and looking at it every day and and just absolutely fell in love with this thing and um and then started doing research um and then of course I went and bought another tree uh, and another and another and and eventually I had this lineup in the backyard of you know maybe five or six trees and um and it wasn't long before I, I found the uh, the Albury Wodonga Bonsai Society and thought I'd go down and have a look and, and see if there are people there that know know something about this this mysterious uh, world of bonsai. So went in and, and I was welcomed with with open arms. I was I was easily the youngest person there. Um, 
but the but the people in that old shed down at the uh, Albury um, showgrounds, um, you know, welcomed me so so warmly. Said, "Come in," and I took in. I think it was a, a paper bark that I that I got at a Garden World in Melbourne, and um, and they took one look at it, and it was it was just a stump. With it that was cut flat, it was a straight, straight stump that was cut flat, and they said, "Look, my first lesson there was bonsai needs to have taper." And the, he just pulled out the uh, the the machinery, and they said, "Let's grind this thing down. Let's let's uh, let's grind the stump to a uh, to a side branch and and um, and put some taper in it." So we did that, and we chose some branches and. And boom, the uh, the technical side of bonsai was was introduced to me there. Um, thinking about design and how we can how we can you know put put movement and um, and shape and taper into a tree, all all done right there on that first day at the club. Um, and so yeah, eventually we uh, I, I became a member um, and. Started working together with the members there on trees, taking taking trees that I had down there and getting new trees and talking bonsai. Um, and then, uh, then I then I moved to Japan, um, and that was way back twenty one years ago. Um, oh wow! So you've been there a while. Well, um, the story continues. Um, so I, I got to Japan and, uh, and I, I went to Ormia while I was here. I came here to live um, and work back then. I went to Ormia. That was one of the first things I did and looked at all the nurseries there, was amazed um, and then came back to where I was living um, and unfortunately i never did anything towards my bonsai passion in that first time that i was in japan um but at, at that time 20 years ago the the internet wasn't a wasn't what it is now and to find information i didn't even know that you know you could become a, a deshi like a an apprentice um i couldn't speak the language at all so I had no idea of how to find any kind of clubs or, you know, enthusiasts. And, um, and, it's, and now looking back at that time, uh, that was my, that's, that's, um, that's my, my greatest, uh, what, what, do I, what do I say? You know, the thing that I really wish I had have done, um, got into it then when I was young, and was here the first time, uh, but no, seven years I was here uh, in Japan at that time, and um, and I didn't do anything except visit a few nurseries, um, see uh, see some trees on the street as as I was walking around or driving along, um, and appreciating them, of course, um, knowing that they're beautiful things and amazing things and take a lot of work and years and, and all of that, but. I didn't do any learning, any training then. Um, after 
after seven years, I came back to Australia. And the funny thing is that I got a job as a photographer as soon as I got back. And next to the depot where I was working, um, there was a building with these old junipers in the car park, surrounding the car park, and this building was about to be demolished. And I took a look at them and I thought, geez, they would make awesome bonsai. So, um, so I got in contact with the owners. I said, is this car park being demolished? They said, yeah. I said, can I take the junipers? They said, sure. So I spent the next month or so digging junipers from around that car park and boom, I was back in. Um, it got me back into bonsai massively. I was in my garage every night, um, you know, working on these trees, had them all around the yard. Um, and then, yeah, that, that was in Geelong and, uh, and then became part of the Geelong Society, um, of course, started collecting more and more trees and then got on to Os Bonsai where, I mean, and by this stage, 10 years later, um, the internet, internet had grown. There were forums, you know, there were, yeah, it was, it was opening up um, and, yeah, got onto Os Bonsai where I met a lot of, you know, the community around, around Australia and, and it introduced me to, you know, a lot of connections around the world and other, other places on the internet that I could do research and look at trees and, and all of that. Um, and then, um, yeah, really, really got into it from that stage really deeply. Uh, and then... Uh, started coming back to Japan. I came back to Japan a few times and that first time I came back to Japan just for a holiday, uh, I, I, well, I'd met a few bonsai guys who'd come to Australia, Hirotoshi Saito um, and a few others in Australia. Um, and I'd asked them who would be a good person to learn from in the area that my, that my ex-wife it's from, and they said, Mr. Ishii. Uh, and so I went to Mr. Ishii's nursery. It's called Yukien. And I just knocked on the door, walked in the door one day, and I said, I'm from Australia, and I want to learn bonsai. And he said, I'll teach you everything that I know. And so from that stage, I started coming back to Japan for, uh, for a month at a time, and learning, working together with Mr. Ishii and his son, who's who's um, who's also a, uh, a professional. Uh, and then eventually, Mr. Ishii said to me, "If you move back to Japan, um, I'll invite you to be my apprentice." And at that stage, we were talking about and thinking about returning to Japan to live. Uh, and that kind of sealed the deal. We, uh, we just said, yep, let's do it. So packed up, sold everything, came back to Japan, um, and basically in the first week that I was back, set up a house and I was in the nursery um, from there on until, until now. Yeah, so it's been uh, quite a journey. Um... <laughs> It's kind of a, a different story to most, but I want to um, I want to just go back a little bit to where you said that 
you know, you went to your first bonsai club and what caught my attention there was is when people are first starting out in bonsai, you know, like you said that, you know, you bought your girlfriend, uh, the cryptomeria, and then, you know, you started watering it and looking after it and things like that. And then you bought a few more trees, um, you know, that, that innocence of, you know, I think I spoke to Sean about this, the innocence of how much love you had for those trees, even though they were most likely, you know, just big box bonsai trees, you know, basically sticks in a pot. Yeah. But I, I, I think the part where you really got lucky was is you said that you'd gone to that club and on your first time there when you'd taken the paper bark, the technical aspect really kicked in because as, you know, everyone does when they start off in bonsai, they have that one aha moment that really kicks them over that line from just being a beginner and actually moving forward into bonsai. And for you, that sounds like it was grinding that stump down to get the taper and then realizing from there that bonsai is so much more than just a tree in a pot. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of technique a lot of proper technique at the right time. Um, so, I mean, I think for you that was fantastic being able to go to that club and see firsthand that kind of technique on display. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think there were two things. I think there was that and I think what was even more important was the positivity, uh, the welcoming um, that the club gave me. Um, they immediately made me feel like, you know, I'm part of the group. I am welcome to come here, talk to them, ask them anything. Um, and what I presented to them on my first day was probably an absolute piece of crap, but uh, that didn't matter. And and that's why today, when I see you know on internet forums and on Facebook groups and all of that, people presenting, you know, a tree that, that isn't, isn't a finished bonsai. It's, it's not worth much at all, but they put it up there with pride. I'm not ever going to be the guy that, um, that tells them this is a piece of shit, don't waste your time. I'm going to be the guy that supports them and says, look, um, we, can, we can learn from this. We can develop this. We can um, we can watch this grow and get so much out of it um, here and now. Um, and it really makes me sad. And I think it's a real waste of time and energy when I see people shooting others down um, online for having, um, you know, immature stock or not having the knowledge to work on bonsai because we all start somewhere. And I don't know anyone that started bonsai um, with, you know, an amazing piece of uh, piece of material. Um, we all start, you know, at the lowest lowest point and move up from there. Well, that's it too, because that point where we start from is almost one of the most important points in your bonsai journey, because that's where that's where the seed is sown. That's where the bug really bites you. If you don't have that, you know, it's a shame, like you say, if somebody, 
gets their first bonsai and they're really proud of it and, you know, they've still got that innocence of, you know, that's the best tree in the world and somebody comes along and shits on it. And, you know, that's a really bad thing. But if they're like you when you went to that club and supported by positivity, eventually they're going to learn themselves what better material is and, you know, better technique. But without that, without that drive and that pride that you first feel when you get your first tree and look after it and keep it alive, I mean, as I say, I think that's one of the most important parts of the bonsai journey. Absolutely. Um, and in any, in any artistic endeavour um, at all, um, my son's my son's learning guitar now. He's a beginner, um, and you know what he's playing is not not amazing. But I'm there supporting him, telling him, "Yeah, you're doing well for for who you are and where you're at, and and you're going to get better if you just keep going." Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah. So the next part of your you know your journey, you said that you know, you got into the bonsai and then you moved to Japan uh, for seven years, um, didn't actually really practice bonsai while you were there in Japan. You'd seen it a little bit. But that first seven years in Japan, did that really set you up for the apprenticeship now? Because I can imagine, um, you know, for, for somebody to go to a foreign country and take on an apprenticeship, you've got to have really broad shoulders, really thick skin, and, you know, especially in a foreign country where you don't speak the language because, you know, communication barriers are a difficult thing. So already being in Japan for seven years, did that was that valuable in the way that when you went back there for your apprenticeship, you already had the base set? Yeah, I think um, I think there are some some positives to to having had that experience. Um, I, now I, I speak the language you know, reasonably well, um, and when I came back uh, four years ago, um, yeah, I I wasn't too bad at that stage, so I was able to communicate. I was able to um, to to kind of understand a certain percentage of what what the boss was saying, what he's asking me to do, the lessons he was trying to teach me. Um, but language isn't the only thing. Um, Japan, you know, Japan's a really unique culture, um, and and the way that you know certain certain ways of doing things um, are valued. Um, in Japan where they might not be in other places. Um, it's really, really, anyone that's lived here and, and knows Japan will agree with me that it's really difficult to describe exactly what those things are. But, but um, there, there are kind of unspoken ways that you do things um, here. Um, yeah, ways that you, you treat people or, or uh, ways that you kind of uh, work um, and, and live your life and see the world or, or be seen to, to see the world. And, and um, having had that previous 
seven years experience living here in this culture and interacting with Japanese people and um, and all of that. Um, yeah, I think it helped me um, help soften the blow of of jumping headfirst into an apprenticeship. Whereas someone who's fresh, who's never been to Japan, jump off the plane straight in the nursery, I think it would just uh, it'd be like a, a yeah, just a massive explosion. Like wouldn't know what's going on. Um, yeah. So I think yeah for me than than probably many others. Yeah. So when you did go there the first time, yep. What would you have said was the biggest struggle? Was it the culture itself, or the language, or was there something else? Uh, yeah. As I said, it's really hard to describe. Um, I, I I know people have had real real personal struggles um, moving to Japan and, and fitting in and kind of accepting the differences in culture. But I I never really felt that. Um, I really, um, I really felt like it worked for me just moving here and living here. Um, I've always been a pretty open kind of person. So I, I, I um I never had any you know preconceived ideas of how I should do things or how others should do things so I was I I came here as an open book and ready to 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 learn rather than to judge and yeah and came here ready to accept rather than to kind of apply my own preconceived ideas to to how I live here uh, yeah. So it was. So I, I fit in pretty well when I got here. I didn't have. Any, I've, I don't feel like I've had any real big troubles or problems, emotionally or psychologically or culturally, here. Yeah. So you must have those broad shoulders and that thick skin, you know, because <laughs> as I said, a lot of people would probably, you know, be crushed under the immense pressure of just everything happening at once. Yeah, yeah. Some people, some people don't just don't fit right with it. Yeah. So, w- when you came back to Australia, and you were saying that you um, were working next door to that car park, it was getting demolished, and you know there was a bunch of junipers there. When you were back in that period, did you happen to work? Um, on any Australian natives in that time? I know you, you know, said that you had a paperback, you know, on your first run, but what about in that period? Have you had much experience with our natives here? Uh, I, I had a fig, um, a fig, and I really liked the way that figs grow. They're really easy to, um, really easy, really quick to develop. Um, so, yeah, I had a I had a really big fig which was found, um, found super pot bound. It had probably been in that pot for twenty years on someone on a grandma's front doorstep, and they they said take it away. It's just some old thing, and to me it was treasure. Um, so yeah, I worked on a fig. I also 
um, dug some natives from a golf course that was being um, being ripped down to build uh, to build you know apartments and all of that. And I ha- I got access to that, and I dug a few things from there and kept them alive. Um, they're they're actually still still around. I know where they are and who's got them. Um, and yeah, they grow quite well um, as bonsai. But the things that I grew seem to seem to grow quite sparse, um, sparsely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're coming a lot further with our natives now here in Australia. Um, I know. Even today, I was surprised. I was doing my rounds around the garden here, and I looked at uh, a tea tree that. I'd only put wire on it um, maybe four weeks ago and it was biting in that hard because our natives here, they just grow so quickly. And once you get used to their patterns, um, you know, you kind of, with the natives, they're a little bit uh, back to front, I guess you could say, in terms of, you know, when it comes to junipers and things like that, I don't wire them in the springtime because it's kind of pointless because you'd be taking the wire back off again. But with the uh, natives, it's summertime here. So right now all the natives are just flourishing. As soon as that heat comes, they just take off um, and they, they they just grow like crazy, which which is actually what makes them great bonsai material. Um, so all, all the natives that you know, I'm growing here, they, they're nice and healthy and full and, um, yeah, they're just an absolute pleasure to work with, but I can guarantee I've got nothing here like you'd probably be working with over there, that's for sure. Oh, I've, I've actually got a few natives here. Um, All right. I, uh, I've got a leptospermum, um, which I've got yep. in the nursery here. Um I've got a I've got a little eucalypt that I found in a nursery and I've I've planted it and, and put some bends in it. Um, I've got a an acacia. Uh, what what's what's the weeping one um, that quite a few people have got as bonsai over there? Uh, I'm not oh, too sure. Ewaddle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've got a. I've got a sticky wattle. I, I actually brought some seeds over um, from Australia, um, and I've got a whole bunch of those growing. They're they're actually, I really really like them. Um, and, I, and I gave my boss a couple of trees the first time I left, um, and they're they're growing really really well. One's a one's a melaleuca, uh, and the other one is a bottle brush. And the melaleuca seems to really be developing quickly as a bonsai. Yeah, that's crazy because it'd be interesting to see how the Japanese climate affects those natives because, you know, one of the things that makes them grow really fast here is the the really, really warm weather. Um, But... I've never been to Japan myself, but what what is the heat like there? Because I know that their winters get pretty cold, which would be interesting to see how the natives handle that too. Um, but what about how warm does it get there? Uh, well, uh, well, right now it's um, every night we're 
where I live, it's getting to about minus two. And um, and the natives I've got, I've also got some um, some casuarinas. Um, they all don't mind, uh, you know, down to at least minus minus three, minus four um, overnight. Um, the casuarinas got change color. Actually, they go red when it gets that cold. Um, all, all right. The foliage um, goes goes really bright red, uh, and then the green comes back when the weather warms up. Um, and the the leptospermum, all the all the leaves go purple um, when it gets that cold as well. Um, so that's one thing I've noticed that I never noticed before in Australia. Um, and so. Yeah, all of the trees don't mind the cold and they love the heat. Here, it's tropical in summer. It's humid yeah. as hell, 24 hours a day, and it's boiling hot. It's up to 30, it's, it's probably 28 overnight, all night long in the summer, and it's up to like 38 all day long. Um, so it's boiling hot here. And super humid. The junipers there would be loving that humidity. Yeah, yeah. Everything loves the humidity. <laughs> so, um, when when you got to the the garden that you're working at now, what did you say the name of the nursery was? It's called Yukien. Yukien. So when when you got there, um, was there any? one technique that stood out to you that was like night and day from what we might do here in Australia? Uh, I don't, I don't think so. Um, I, not, not as far as techniques go, but I think as far as, I think perspectives are different. Um, yep. I think that, I mean, we, we, we do all the same techniques, you know, Yearly, um, the yearly candle cutting and breaking and, and needle pulling and all of that. Um, the the trees get uh, get repotted just like they would in Australia, except that I think conifers Australians seem to be a bit in a bit of a rush to to repot them a bit too often. Um, yeah, we we'll repot our our pines probably every every four years and I've seen people in Australia report them every year or every two years um, and not not often leave them as long as we do here um, and what I've noticed is that that third year in the pot really um, really makes a difference that that third year the first year the trees seemed to pines seem to grow you know a bit slowish. And the second year they start to get their feet and third year they're really running. They're really healthy and, and pumping, you know, um, in that new, they've broken down a bit of that soil um, and they've locked their roots in, their roots have extended a little bit in the pot and they start to really get healthy and really get used to their their place in that pot. So I I don't like to repot um, less than at least uh every three years with pines um, and with with um, repotting with repotting uh, deciduous 
I noticed that there's a, a trend to um, a trend in Australia to bare root every time, and we pretty much never bare root even our deciduous trees. Um, we focus on um, getting uh, getting lots of the soil out, but we want to keep quite a, quite a few of those. Fine, a nice pad, a nice loaf of of, um, of fine roots in close, um, which can just kick off when that spring, you know, really comes comes through. So, um, well, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting that you make that point because, you know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, you know, with the pines, with people repotting conifers too early, if you look at the soil mix that's generally used for that, it should tell you that you're not going to be repotting that tree on a frequent basis because, you know, that's why there is that pumice and lava rock in there to stop, you know, with the Akadama, it breaks down quite quickly. And if the tree was in just um, straight Akadama, then the the soil would become quite anaerobic, but the, the pumice and the lava rock kind of stops that from happening in allows you to keep the tree in the pot for a longer time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it's funny when you say with the deciduous about people bare rooting, what in Japan, because I can only speak for, you know, what we're currently doing here, but in Japan, what would be a common mix for a deciduous tree? Because I know there is a bit of a trend here at the moment for using straight akadama, which would mean that, you almost would have to bear root because that akadama would break down over two years and suddenly you'd be choking your soil mix. So what what's being used in Japan as a deciduous, you know, soil mix? Uh, we use, we use for, for almost everything that we, we have in the nursery, we use different, um, different ratios of just akadama and pumice. Um, sometimes yep. we put um, some, oh, some, especially with older conifers, we put some um, a little bit of charcoal in. Um, but most of what we repot is just pumice and um, and akadama. Um, sometimes. So is the deciduous two to one? Uh, so deciduous, no, 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 no. It would be more like, uh, be more like uh, 70, 80% Akadama. Yeah, and then just a little bit of pumice. Or maybe, maybe like, yeah, 80, closer to 80% Akadama. Yep. Yeah. Um, we also use Kiryu sometimes. Um, I, don't, I don't even know exactly what Kiryu is, um, but. Is that like a more like a clay substance? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because even though Akadama's clay, but it's like hard fired. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I mean, the only reason I'm asking about the mixes is just so you know I'm trying to get a better understanding of you know what they're doing in Japan and kind of because I, I, I've heard it before that. You know, a lot of what we've learned has come from reading 
books that the Japanese have written, but there may have been misinterpretations due to the language barrier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's just interesting to learn, you know, what apprentices actually are doing so you can try and take that information and decipher, okay, well, if they're using 70 to 80% Akadama, then moisture retention is really important for the deciduous trees. And, you know, the 20% pumice is that to stop the mix from breaking down quite so quickly. Well, we can see, you can see with with your, your deciduous trees... You can see it when you water in the spring and in the summer. Um, that water is sucked up by those trees so quickly. Um, they they just drink like nothing else. Um, yeah. So they it's it's pretty obvious that they need higher moisture retention um, in their pots. Whereas the pines and the pines in particular, they they're not as quick to, to suck up. Um, the needle junipers really drink like nothing else. Um, and, yeah, yeah, it's, it's when, when you're looking at these trees every day um, and you're looking at multiple really well-developed um, specimens um, that, have, that have got their roots, the root systems have been developed, um, it's basically at a stage where you can just do a simple repot and they'll just do the same thing every year um, after you've repot, you can predict what, what's going to happen after that repot. Um, then you start seeing patterns. You start seeing how those root systems react to certain, certain you know, soil types or, yeah, certain environmental, um, you know, changes between seasons or whatever. Um, when, when you've got, you know, a garden dug tree, you know, in Australia, which has got, you know, some giant fat roots over here and a few fine, fine hair roots over there. Um, you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, you don't know where roots going to grow. You don't know if it's going to shoot out millions of hair roots or if it's going to shoot just a bunch of hair roots off of, of one big fat root somewhere. So you can't predict. You don't, you can't see these patterns happening if you're digging only you know, out of out of people's gardens every year. Um, but, yeah, that's one benefit of being here uh, in Japan. You see trees whose root systems have been developed over long periods of time at, um, you know, consistently. Yeah. Yeah, I think you've just um, kind of hit the nail on the head in the fact that, you know, a, a lot of people that I've spoke to so far that have been to Japan, I've always asked them the question that, you know, do you think a Japanese apprenticeship is still something that's worthwhile? And I think, you know, what you've just said about being in the garden and being able to see those trees on a day-to-day basis, that is probably the number one thing is being around so many trees of, you know, the same species, seeing some that are acting one way, some that are acting another, getting to, you know, be in that environment and really soak up that experience of, you know, what the trees are doing um, and having all them around you. Because if you're just, you know, say you're just a general enthusiast or maybe you work at a small nursery, you don't have that... um, 
I guess, experience of having a section that's got, you know, 20, 30 maples and you get to see how they're all reacting, if they're acting the same differently, what's making that happen, and then you've got 20, 30 junipers, pines, azaleas, all that kind of thing. Exactly, and not only that, you've also you're also backed up by generations of of masters uh, of professionals who have done the same thing and seen the same thing so you you're basically got under your belt you're standing right in front of a bunch of trees which have already been through um a bunch of masters who are all um they've all got variations to their techniques slight variations but they're all um, pretty much doing the same thing with the same goals and learning from the same big pool, um, or you might say it's a small pool of, uh, you know, that's this this pool has kind of been been evaporated down into you know a set of standard techniques um, over you know a hundred years. So that's the real benefit of. Uh, of of doing an apprenticeship in Japan, whereas overseas we just don't have that historical um, depth and breadth of knowledge um, all in the one place together. So there's a lot of guesswork, I think, internationally, um, still a lot of testing and um, a lot of testing and kind of watching, listening, learning and by yourself in your own backyard, whereas... Um, yeah, the knowledge here has been, yeah, has been shared around on a professional, um, on a professional level for so long. Yeah, that's the crazy thing about bonsai, isn't it? That it's one of those, it's one of those hobbies, one of those arts and one of those things that you practice where the knowledge just never ends. If you ever stop learning bonsai, you've stopped doing bonsai. Yeah, yeah. That's right, and if you if if ever you think you've uh, you've learned it all, um, I think you're in a pretty dangerous position there because because even I mean my my boss he's been working professionally in the industry for a very long time, more than forty years, and and um and just the other day he told me that he'd learned some new some new technique. On um, on beaches uh, that that he he'd never um, he'd never heard before. Um, he he knew. I mean, he's he's at the highest in the highest you know, echelon of of, you know, of bonsai in the world. Um, he's he's a judge for Kokufu and he's known. Um, his reputation's very high. He's the head of the. Um, uh, he's one of the heads of the uh, of the Japan um, uh, Growers Co-op, the Green Club, um, and I mean he's shown trees at Kokofu every year, multiple trees every year for the last at least twenty years, twenty to thirty years. Um, yeah, he's yeah, he's he's at that level. Um, of, of yeah, his peers are all the highest. Uh, the, the people we all know that we see in the, in the magazines and all of that, um, and uh, and still he's 
he's learning new things and he doesn't see himself as as knowing everything he still knows that there are gaps there are things that we can all learn there's still knowledge that hasn't been discovered and found yet or there are people doing things who never thought to to share it around or um yeah there's still people testing so it just goes to show that even at that very highest level we can always we can always uh add extra notches to our belt yeah 100 percent. so in your nursery where you're working can you just kind of take us through a, a standard day there yeah um Ah, uh, every day is different. There is no standard day. Um, uh, every season, things are different every season. Um, but uh, I usually get in around. So I'm I'm there. I'm, my my situation is very unique um, as as an apprentice. Um, so my my um, my situation will be very different to to many other apprentices. Uh, but I, I usually get there uh, around around eight forty five, um, eight thirty eight forty five. Uh, I'll come in um, depending on the season. Um, if it's if it's summer, I'll basically just turn on the tap immediately and start watering. Um, if it's uh, if it's winter. I'll turn on the uh, the urn and pour myself a cup of tea and get warm. Um, <laughs> um, if there's work that I've been working away at that I haven't haven't finished yet, um, then I'll just uh, you know just walk in, drop my stuff, and go straight to to do that. Um, other days I'll walk in um, and. Ask the boss, what do you want? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to be? Um, uh, and yeah, it really just depends. Some days the boss is really busy. He's in a shitty mood. Um, so I'll just walk in. I'll see that he doesn't want to be annoyed. Um, I might have finished all the work that I've got to do. Um, and so I'll just grab a set of tweezers and go out and start weeding um, and, and wait for him to to um to finish whatever he's doing um yep yeah uh other days i'll walk in and he'll say adam jump in the car we're going to a client's house um it just could be anything on any day and it's pretty hard to predict some days so just the other day um i walked in and he said uh adam Get that tree on the trolley. Um, we're repotting it for kookafu um, today. So, so I started running around, getting all the tools ready for repotting, um, getting the bench uh, that we repot all, uh, everything surrounding it ready. Um, so we've got all the tools there, all the stands and things. Uh, we brought out the pot. We started. Um, I started, uh, you know, meshing up, meshing up the pot and. Looking at it, checking for any any faults or problems with the pot, and um, yeah, it just could be just could be anything on any day. Yeah, right. So, in your in your apprenticeship, there is there any you know one job that you favour over anything else? 
Uh, um, uh, yeah, I love, I really love um, creating shari. Yep. Um, yeah, gin, gin shari. Um, I love getting the chisels out, um, hammer and chisel and, and, yeah, splitting wood and stripping wood and stripping bark. Um, uh, yeah, um, it's one of my favourite jobs to do. I love it. Um, uh, yeah, I love wiring and styling. Everybody does, um, depending on the species, some, some and the and the and the individual tree. Uh, some trees are a real bitch to work on, and others are just a dream to work on. Um, and sometimes you can't. It's hard to predict it. You see a tree and you think far out. I am going to love working on that tree, and it just turns into a nightmare for you. It just doesn't doesn't do what you're wanting it to do um hands might not be doing what you uh are, are asking them to do on that particular day um on other days everything just works it's like any job i suppose like you have you have days where everything just goes right and, and days where everything just goes wrong and most days are somewhere in between yeah yeah it's funny you say that because there's sometimes where you look at a tree and you see this design and you're like, yeah, that is awesome. You, you go and get it off the bench, you sit it there, you get ready to work on it, you start wiring and then you look at it and you go, wow, where did that design go? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it, it just evades you for some reason and then other days, you know, you, you can take a tree that you've seen nothing in and just start working on it and just turns into magic. And here's the, um, here's... Here's the amazing thing about, or here's the here's one of the benefits of of working in this industry here in Japan compared to you know, other places. Um, I mean, my boss, he's a real artist, and he he can just see he can just see design and balance and flow from a mile away from a tree. He'll see a tree from the other side of the yard. And and know what's going to work on it. He'll know where the front's going to be. Even if he's looking at it from the back of the tree, he'll he'll know oh, the front's around the other side to the left slightly. Um, he's seen that many thousand trees, hundreds, you know, tens, hundreds, of thousands of trees worked on them. He knows them so intimately that it's just second nature. It's just like riding a bike to him, um, and to to see that in front of you every day even i'm coming up to the end of my fourth year now and it still amazes me every time when i see my boss um work on work on trees there um it you don't get used to it to see to see a real artist um someone who has true talent um work like that um i mean yeah um, but it's the result of so many different things. Um, it's a result of growing up in Japan and seeing that aesthetic, the Japan aesthetic from the day you're born, seeing it in temples, seeing it in gardens, seeing it um, in, in magazines and seeing it in, on TV everywhere you go, living um, living that aesthetic and then applying that to, you know, to 
to bonsai. You already know it. You've already got it in your heart. Um, and that's one one real challenge that I think is faced by most foreigners that that come to Japan. They they haven't seen it and they haven't lived it. They don't know it intimately, innately. Um, and so it's an extra step. It's a step behind um, like Japanese native deshis. They've already got that. They've already seen that. They've already lived that. And a foreigner comes in, they're already that far behind that. So they've got a lot of catching up. to. We've got a lot of catching up to do. Um, when we come to Japan, we've got to, got to learn that aesthetic. We've got to learn to see with those eyes and learn to see with that heart. Um, yeah. I don't even remember the question yeah. <laughs> that you that you asked, but but yeah, yeah. And, and um, to build on that point, I think you know that experience that your boss would have. A part of that also too is you know that horticulture knowledge and having the the experience that he's had with trees, because I think a lot of people get stuck when they get into bonsai and they think that styling a tree is only learning you know different styles whether that be you know informal upright slanting cascade semi-cascade you know first branch back branch all that kind of stuff flared root base um you know learning lines and that they think every all that is how you get design out of a tree, but I think a big part that's missing is understanding the horticulture of a tree. So, you know, let's just say black pines, for example. If you get get nursery stock black pines, nine times out of ten, when you get that stock, all, all the needles and everything, they're all right out on the ends of the branches. There's not a lot that's riding close to the trunk. So people look at that and they go, oh, how do I style that? And then they try to follow those, you know, guidelines of, you know, how to style a bonsai and it just doesn't turn out that, you know, that nice. Whereas if you understand the horticulture of a pine and, you know, you take it and then you bring it back to your garden and then you look at it and you go, okay, the first thing I need to achieve is back budding nice and close into the trunk. So I'm going to feed this thing hard all season just going to go for it and then once those buds pop you know allowing those buds to grow and then knowing when you can cut back to them without killing the branch and you know sometimes there's actually a year or two of work to be done before you can start styling a tree and I think that's something that's you know not taught very widely um yeah I think as I mentioned before perspective um the perspective that that um, practitioners in Japan have compared to those internationally might be a little bit different. So, I think you're right when you say people might be a bit um, stuck in that stuck in that um, pattern of looking at a tree for its um, attributes that fit into certain categories. Like uh, if it's, you know, first branch, second branch or Nabari, you know, that stretches out to the left or stretches out to the right um, or, you know, roots that scrunch on, scrunch in on one side of the trunk, it must 
has to lean the opposite way or whatever. Um, I think that in Japan, they look further into the future um, than they do uh, rather than looking at, you know, creating a bonsai here and now. Um, I think they... It's like they're playing a game of chess with the tree and um, they're looking, you know, 25 moves ahead rather than trying to create the final design here and now. And a lot of people um, that I've seen in Australia and, um, and you know, on international bonsai forums and all of that are trying to, to get this complete, finished, full, fluffy look today and and it's really hard to play the game properly that way um and yeah it's really hard to finish the game well that way <clears throat> um but if you set up your structure and make your design design decisions based on what's going to happen in the future um and take make your moves slowly but um, but strategically, then the result's always going to be good. The result's always going to be good. And I think I think that you know a lot of what I see, and I, and I wouldn't have said this before I came to Japan, but what I, what a lot of what I see outside of Japan is just trying to push it a little bit faster than um, than what might be desirable. For, for the tree itself, for the bonsai itself. Yeah. Yeah, it's fast track bonsai. It's trying to play catch up. Yeah. So in in Japan, one one of the first things that I that I learned early, one of the things I learned early was, hey, my boss doesn't chop trees down. He doesn't chop down to low branches and then start again with a side branch ever. Never. He'll look at the design, what the tree has naturally done, naturally wanted to do, how it's naturally wanted to grow, and then he'll choose a design that way and let the tree be what it's trying to be. So he's kind of uh, he's kind of listening to what the tree is saying, and then then just helping to dress it up, just helping to um to fancy up in the way. That is keeping its originality, keeping what what it's it, what nature has done for it, but just helping it to be beautiful. Yeah, that you know that naturalistic approach to bonsai. You know, like you're saying there, there's definitely merit to that. Um, you know, looking at a tree and seeing what the tree is giving you. But there's, you know, also it's good to have it in your back pocket as well, that horticulture knowledge and just thinking, you know, if I could only get a branch there, then it's going to completely change the direction of this tree. Um, I know that here I've got a tea tree and the first branch on it, it's always bugged me that the foliage is just so far out and I'd like it to be in tighter. And... You know, I've had that tree looking funny for the last few seasons because I've been letting that one branch just 
grow out and grow out and grow out and you know all I've been trying to do is just get that power and energy in that branch to try and get some some buds to pop closer to the trunk and lo and behold this season a bud popped out right where I wanted it it couldn't be in a more perfect position (laughs) so you know once that bud grows out I can actually start you know designing that perfect tree that I had in mind yeah yeah you know, I, I think, you know, that, you know, like I was saying before at the start of the podcast with you and your paperback, you know, when people have those aha moments, that's what it was for me, just knowing that you could use horticulture to design a tree as much as you can use aesthetic knowledge and, you know, artistic skill to design a tree. Yeah, so one of the benefits of being in Japan and having such a such a deep, uh, uh, such a strong and long um, professional culture of bonsai is that there's a lot of stock out there. You can pick and choose um, your price level of tree, your style of tree, your species of tree, whatever you want, it's out there. Um, so. So trees that have faults, that have problems, really difficult design problems, they um they will be left on the bench and they won't be sold. Um, people won't buy them, or they'll be so cheap. Um, but things that do have everything in the right place, that do have, you know, this this. Uh, you know, a great feeling to them, um, great age to them, great movement, really unique, a, a uniqueness to them. They'll sell quickly and they'll sell at high prices. But um, if you want to do bonsai on the really cheap, you can here. You can buy, you know, stuff that's that's quality, that's been grown for a long time, it's quite old. Um, you can pick it up here for cheap and you can buy a tree for hundred thousand dollars as well if you if you are you know a you know a 400 year old tree that's perfect um, if you want to so you can jump in at any any place in the market that you want to and find stuff but in Australia you can't do that you don't have that choice um, the industry is not big enough um, yet and I would love to see it grow yeah, and I think too um, here in Australia, we're yet to learn how to pick good stock, you know, amongst everything because I, I've seen it done so many times and I was guilty of this when I first started bonsai, you know, I'm no angel, but, you know, you, you see people that go into a nursery and, you know, there might be just say a bench of Chinese elms there that are just rough nursery stock yeah and they'll always gravitate towards that one that's sticking up above the pile you know it's it's like 10 inches taller than the rest of them and that's the one they go for because it's quote unquote the biggest out of all of them there yeah where i think you know if you learn how to buy nursery stock if you learn how to go in and you know look at the first you know five to ten inches you know, what, what's the base of the tree like? What's the movement like? You know, is is there a long straight section? Is it got good movement? 
you know, what are those really important aspects of the tree like? You know, who cares how tall it is? Because you're probably just going to cut it off anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I wish that we had access to the kind of stock that you guys do in Japan because, you know, my jaw would probably hit the floor. You know, the, the same with pots. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just Kind of spoiled for choice. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and again, same same deal with pots. You can buy at any any um any level of quality that you that you want over in Japan or okay, you you can get anything you want. So one, once you do leave Japan, have you thought about, you know, what's your next move? Do you think you're going to stay in Japan because you're there now and it's something you're always interested in? Or do you think you might travel the world and, you know, go and visit places like Vietnam and India who are, you know, doing good things with bonsai in Europe and all that kind of stuff? Have you thought about that? Uh, a little bit. Um, and I don't know. I, I actually don't know. Um, I haven't got a master plan um, put together. Um, one, one thing that I would love to do is make a contribution somehow to Australian bonsai, um, to, the, to, the, to the level of knowledge, to, yeah, I want to I help people learn, learn to create great bonsai, to, to help raise... The level of awareness of what bonsai is, what good bonsai is in Australia, set people on on the right path from the beginning. So, I'd like to, um, I don't know, create some kind of focus groups of of people who are just in the beginning of of their learning path, and really help take them from from the start to the end. Well, there is no end, but you know, to to help them become, you know, good bonsai practitioners. That's what I'd love to do at some stage. Um, yeah, I'd love to share my knowledge, um, you know, in Australia and uh, around the world if, uh, if the opportunity arose. Um, and I'd like to uh, help foster some kind of connection between, you know, Japanese bonsai professionals and um, and the rest of the world um, because I speak uh, Japanese and because I um, have a lot of connections now in the Japanese bonsai world. I know I know a lot of people on a personal level now um, who are professionals here. Um, I think that I can somehow help share bonsai with the world through through giving them giving the world access to to them somehow but i'm not exactly sure how how that might be done but yeah somehow somehow connecting japanese artists with the world yeah well you know let's let's make a start on that now because this podcast is, you know, according to our analytics, we've got 47 countries that constantly listen to this podcast. So it's only a small start, but what would you say is the one piece of advice that you would give somebody that's 
in bonsai that you think might change their direction and put them on a better path, whether that's something to do with horticulture or, you know, the mindset? Because I think, you know, teaching mindset in bonsai is a really, you know, valuable thing. So what do you think that one thing would be for you? Uh, I think that would be uh, bonsai is such a, there's such a wide range of of things that we need to create good bonsai and so it's hard to put it down to one thing. But I think if I were to put it down to a few few things, it would be to to look at bonsai, look at the highest quality bonsai. So if you have access to the to the Kokofu bonsai yearly um, albums, really look at them, really studying, study the trees um, because all of the trees in those books break the rules but they're all perfect. They're all amazing. Um, and so, so I think I would say that, yeah, look at how trees in nature and trees also in bonsai pots, how they move, how they flow, how they have some kind of energy in them. See if you can identify how 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 that's achieved. Um, and I would also say, yeah, learn learn the aesthetic. Um, look look at the aesthetic of bonsai. So look at the highest quality trees. Don't don't um, try to avoid studying hard on trees that are halfway through their design process or, or a quarter of the way. Look at trees that have been in the pot designed by the best in the world um, and, have, and have, been, have been, you know, in that so-called finished state for a long, long time. They've matured into, into being what they are rather than being bent yesterday into what they are. Um, so look at mature trees, how they flow, look at how they move. Um, yeah, and, yeah, learn the design aesthetic of bonsai. Learn, learn what makes a bonsai beautiful, what makes it, what makes it um, magical. What, what, learn what, what makes a bonsai uh, that's right in front of you, makes you dream of some place that you were, you know, years ago under a tree or up in the mountain, a tree that you saw in the mountains. Why, why does that tree, how has this artist created a tree that invokes those feelings? What, what are the um, aspects in that tree that does that to us? Because they're the hallmarks of great, great trees. Yeah, I think um, that's actually a really good point that you've touched on there because if people are seeing trees that are, let's just say, coming out of development and into refinement and they're only just in that first stage of refinement, so they've only just left, you know, the the growing medium and gone into a fully organic mix. You know, they've only had their first year in the bonsai pot and that's what they're seeing as the finish line, then they're going to stop short on their own trees rather than seeing, you know, what the, as you said, there is no end to bonsai, but seeing a more realistic version of what the finish line is by looking at the Coca for 10 albums. Um, 
you know, that will probably help a lot of people because you don't want to come up short. You don't want to get to that point and think, you know, my tree is done now because that's what you've seen as done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's a really, you know, a really helpful hint and tip that you you've given people there. Um so for people that do want to follow you um and maybe get some advice from you, where where's the best place for them to find you? I'm not really very active online to tell the truth. Um yeah, I got a I've got an Instagram account, but I really put stuff up on it but um but yeah i should um well maybe now's the time you got to be that benchmark of posting the top quality trees so people can see where that finish line is yeah yeah um all right well the name of it is the crossed wire yep the crossed okay wire. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it has got some stuff on there. I'm just looking at it now on my phone as we as we speak. Just as you mentioned it, there are a few things on it. All right, you've you've inspired me. Um, I'm going to start to uh, to be more active on social media. Um, gee, life's busy, man, and um, social media is just another thing that uh, that seems to kind of uh, not. Uh, not come up in my life like it's not something that's in the forefront of my life at all um but maybe it should be a little bit more if i'm looking at, at a future uh in bonsai well you know like you were saying before you'd like to be somebody who helps others and you know guides australia towards a better future in bonsai um and even you know other parts of the world so you know, one way that you can do that is being able to show high quality trees, you know, from the nursery that you're working at. And if you visit, you know, clients' gardens and they allow you to take photos, you know, that's a that's a great way to give people a goal to aspire towards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll do that. There's there's not a lot of that going on at the moment with um with Corona. Um, yeah, we're not really getting out as much as we had done in the past, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, bonsai is one of those things that's really grown tenfold with corona because a lot of people are staying home now. They're, you know, falling back on their trees. They're getting the work done. Um, they're, they're spending more time online studying and finding inspiration um, you know, you can't just rely on online. You need to get your hands on and also, you know, go and see other people's gardens. But, you know, it's good that people are spending that time and doing the work. And, you know, like you said before, you know, when you live it, you breathe it. And when you breathe it, it's in your soul. So, you know, really immersing yourself in the world of bonsai is one of the, you know, one of those really good things that you can do for yourself. Definitely. And, um, it's funny, like uh, you mentioned, you mentioned um, the horticultural side, learning the horticultural side before, and immersing immersing yourself in the world of bonsai. Um, my boss had a, had a bit of an unusual path to becoming who he is in the bonsai world. He he didn't do an apprenticeship. Um, he his brother 
had a, his father had a nursery and his brother took over the nursery. Um, uh, and it was, it was a, uh, just a normal garden nursery and a Niwaki nursery. They, they were gardeners. They, they did work on, on clients' gardens, um, clipping their trees, and um, they grew Niwaki trees and, and all that. Somewhere along the line, they started, they realised that they could make a bit of money, um, you know, doing up bonsai. Um, and they just started doing that themselves. They never learned from anyone, him and his brother. Um, and they did that for a while and then they started um, getting clients' trees into, um, into exhibitions. Uh, they started travelling around, started travelling down to Tokyo and, and, you know, dealing with the Greens, Green Club and all of that. Then they started getting trees into Kokofu, um clients trees you know cockford trees that are the highest level in the world they started working on those then eventually um so we know sean sean from brisbane is or sean from queensland I'm not sure if he's from brisbane uh he's he's at daijuan current boss um Toru suzuki his father um was the head of the Nippon Bonsai Association, the, the Japan Bonsai Association, and just uh, approached my, my boss, Mr. Ishii, and said, look, you're working at the highest level. Um, your, your peers are, you know, are all of those at the highest level, and, um, and I think we should, I think it's time we just gave you, we awarded you um, the... Uh, the certification um, as, as a master, um, make it official. So, so basically he went on a completely different path to most to, to become a certified you know, master of bonsai by the Nippon Bonsai Association. Um, and then, yeah, and, and that's, that's how he got there. So, um, so he actually had a horticultural start. Um, with all of this, he didn't start, you know, as a as a twenty year old, not eighteen, twenty year old deshi under a bonsai master. He started just working on trees by himself with his with his brother to try and make a few extra bucks, and um, and it changed the path of his life. So yeah, yeah, it's funny. Um, I think that's that's a pretty common occurrence in Japan, though. Um, because a lot of the bonsai nurseries there are, you know, third or fourth generation. Um, you know, the people who currently run them have taken over from either a father or a grandfather or some kind of family member. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm pretty sure um, it was um, Bjorn's Oyakata, um, Fujikawa-san at Kokoen, nursery it was his father i believe i'm sorry if i'm butchering this but he actually started out selling you know flowers and all that kind of stuff and he started buying well he started actually going down and collecting satsuki azaleas or i think he was buying them sorry he wasn't collecting them he was buying them and bringing them back up to his nursery and they were selling for 
you know, they were a big ticket item and they were selling really quickly. So he kept doing that. So his path quickly changed from, you know, somebody who just sold regular plants, flowers, those kind of things. And it turned quickly into a bonsai nursery. Yeah. And I, I can't remember if it was Fujikawa-san or somebody else, but they really, really wanted to do something else, you know, growing up and then just somehow they inevitably gave in to the, the world of bonsai and became a bonsai master. Uh, yeah. Well, um... And I think that's, that's, that's part of being just immersed in it. It just happens inevitably. Yeah. Yeah. In, in your blood. Which is something, unfortunately, in the Western world we miss out on because it's not that big of a thing here yet. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, we'll get there, give it quite a few more years and, you know, more people like yourself coming back from Japan and, you know, starting to teach and opening gardens and having some really high-quality material, you know, that'll turn around pretty quickly. I'm um, I'm absolutely 100% in support of... Uh, of- bonsai in australia i i um i love seeing um you know the passion that people are bringing to it uh, i love seeing that, that there are people who are coming over to japan um um i mean not everyone not everyone can not many people at all can come over and spend years of their life doing an apprenticeship so i love and support anyone who's coming over here doing a month here, a month there, or, uh, or, or more, um, and then going back to Australia, taking, taking what they've learned back and, um, and sharing it with, with Australians, um, with, with others there. Um, yeah, I want to see more of that happen. Um, I, I absolutely recommend to anyone out there, um, if you really want to learn what bonsai is then i i do think that japan is the best place for you to come and do that um i don't and and i i will go as far as to say that i think it's a necessity to come to japan and study here if you do want to learn bonsai at the very very highest level um i think it's imperative um that some, some might disagree with me, but I, I really do think, I, I really do believe that um, that is the way to do it. Um, yeah. Well, on that point, um, do you have any advice for somebody who's maybe looking at going to Japan to study? Is there any advice that you can give them on how to get into an apprenticeship or the best way to approach that? Um. Yeah, contact me. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm happy to help anybody who who's really serious uh, about about doing something like that. I, I can definitely try my best to help. Um, I can ring around and um, and make some inquiries for people to see if anybody is happy to take them on um, for short or long term. Um, and I can help them with working out what the, what the details of any, any kind of arrangement that might be made are going to be. Um, I'm, I'm absolutely in support of anybody um, who, who wants to go as far as to, to come across to another country and put in, you know, 
weeks, months, years of their life to to forward um, what's like in Australia or or outside of Japan. So um so yeah, feel free to send me a message um, online or yeah, find me. You'll, you'll be able to find me online, I'm sure. And um yeah, send me send me a message. I'll help you out. He can find you on that Instagram account, yeah, yeah. Crossed Wires. Yes. All right, man. Well, um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, yeah. I think there were so many excellent points in there for people to take away. Um, and, you know, I look forward to seeing what you do over the next few years and, you know, seeing how you support the bonsai community. Um, I think it's excellent that, you know, you're telling people to reach out if